Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Lucas Klein about Notes on the Mosquito, Selected Poems, and this is a book of his translations of the works of contemporary Chinese poet Shi Chuan that was just published with New Directions Press in 2012. This is a beautiful book. It's beautiful as a collection of poems. It's beautiful as a collection of paired texts. So each one of the poetic works that's published in the collection here, and there are many of them, so it's a wonderfully rich volume. Each one is presented both in Chinese and in a parallel English translation. And so it's really wonderful for anyone who likes to um, work between those versions of a text, or who's interested in um, reading both versions of one of these poems. And they're both, both versions of each one of these poems is really a creative work in and of itself. It's also really interesting from the perspective perspective of anybody who is engaged with teaching, thinking about, or working on history in China. And one of the really surprising things for me when I sat down and read the book as a historian was how deeply engaged and really thoughtfully engaged and creatively engaged uh, Xi Chuan was as an author and Lucas was as a translator with situating the way that each one of these poems engages the the texture of what it is as an individual to exist in time and to transform in time with larger ways of thinking about trans- historical transformation. So transformations on a historical time scale and how to engage both of these and negotiate between both of these levels in thinking about historiography. There's a lot in here that's assignable in a history course. Um, and this is not something you might necessarily think of um, when approaching a book on uh, translations of Chinese poetry. Lucas is exceptionally thoughtful about his work as a translator, about the process um, of creating the book, of coming to this topic, and of how we might uh, approach not just readings of these translations, but of translations in general of Chinese poetry and beyond. It was really wonderful to talk with him. It's a, it's a gorgeous book and one that's well worth reading, so I recommend it highly to you, and I hope you enjoy the ensuing conversation. We're here today to talk with Lucas Klein about his recent translation of Xi Chuan's Notes on the Mosquito, Selected Poems. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Lucas, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today, and given such a dramatic uh, time difference as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, Lucas, can you get us started by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the study of and work with contemporary Chinese poetry? Um, sure. Uh, I, I guess the, um, the, 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 the first place to start is that, I, you know, as an undergraduate, I majored as a double major in uh, literary studies and, and Chinese and you know, I graduated from college right at the time, you know, right before it was obvious that 
you know, uh, China would be a really interesting sort of business opportunity for a lot of people. And I wasn't very interested in that. And so, you know, the, the, I, that, that sort of uh, reaffirmed my interest in, in, in things literary and, and cultural and so on. Um, but, but actually, even before that, you know, I started uh, studying Chinese um, quite a bit earlier. I started when I was, when I was 16 and, uh, and lived in China, in Beijing, when I was for a semester of high school. Um, and I, I started interested, being interested in China because of, uh, you know, an interest in like ancient Chinese philosophy and Taoism and Gongzi and all and things like that. Um, over time, that changed into being interested in, in, in literature, and then that too, uh, and, and specifically poetry, uh, and, and and that too evolves so that as well as being interested in ancient Chinese literature and then living and experiencing contemporary China, I was interested. I became interested in, in contemporary Chinese literature. And I noticed that, you know, while there were a lot of people who were interested in contemporary Chinese fiction or in Chinese film and so on, Chinese poetry, contemporary Chinese poetry, was really uh, something that was understudied and, and underappreciated. Uh, and so, you know, as, as I went through through graduate school, I wanted to sort of find a way to to, to bring all of these various different interests together. And I started working on a, on a dissertation um, that, uh, that, that, you know, was both about uh, contemporary Chinese poetry and, uh, as it turned out, Tang Dynasty poetry. Um, Sichuan is not actually someone that that was in my dissertation. Um, it was uh, you know, the, the story of how I came to, to, to get to know Sichuan and work with Sichuan was sort of a separate issue. But but the overall question of Chinese poetry uh, and, and particularly contemporary Chinese poetry sort of has those origins at least, you know, in my life story. Great. And can you, uh, I know I'm asking you to, to reach back now and to, to think mm-hmm. about something that's sort of at the beginning of this ge- genealogy or certainly at the early stages, but what, who were, or um, like who were some of the contemporary Chinese poets and, or what were some of the poems or books that first inspired you to work um, in this broad field? Do you recall that? Sure. I mean, uh, Beidou was the first uh, contemporary Chinese poet that I read. Um, and, uh, a little bit, uh, after that, actually, um, I, I, I was, um, uh, and then and after college, I was living in, in France for a little while and I was in touch with, um, uh, Mabel Lee who had translated in Australia and she had translated, uh, Yang Lian, uh, who was a contemporary of, of uh, of Beidou's. And so I, and, you know, and, and that time I wrote a review of some Beidou books, uh, and then a review of uh, a Yang Lian book that had just been published. And I, it turned out that Yang Lian was a, the, the, the topic of one of my dissertation chapters. Um, so, so you know, it was, and those are some of the earliest people. I mean, these are people who came out, you know, started publishing poetry independently in the, in the late 1970s and the early 80s. Uh, and so, you know, I suppose at a certain way, you know, my interest, um, you know, sort of my awareness of contemporary Chinese poetry sort of did progress historically right now. I got to know some of the, the main writers uh, who were, uh, you know, who were some of the earliest writers of contemporary Chinese poetry, uh, you know, uh, in, in the mainland. Um, you know, they were also, you know, not coincidentally, uh, you know, two of the writers who were available uh, in English, right? And one of the great things was that, you know, their books were published in uh, dual language editions. So I could, you know, read the Chinese and read the English and, and at the same time and sort of compare and, and figure out how I felt about all that. And, um, you know, I, I could you know, engage my interest in translation, too, right? I mean, that, that's another sort of motivating force for, for me and my work. 
uh, is this interest in translation that I study and I participate in and, and so on. And so, you know, these, these things all kind of worked out. And, and any, any ex different example of this is, is another instance of me sort of finding these things, you know, poetry in Chinese, contemporary Chinese poetry, poetry in English, translation, all of these things clustering together, uh, you know, sort of book by book or, or maybe poem by poem. Now, the book itself that we're talking about today is also, um, I should mention for listeners who don't know this already, it, it is a dual language edition. And so the Chinese and your rendering in the English are both available for, for um, all the poems, which is really wonderful. The translation itself, and this was actually something that was... Uh, it was such a pleasure for me to read, and it was so surprising because there's a lot going on in this book. It's quite a rich book. It's a really extensive translation of poetry that somebody coming to a book of poems may not expect to find in a book of poems. I mean, and, and we'll get to this um, over the course of our conversation, but. I remember reading through this for the first time and being struck by, wow, I can assign this as historiography in a history class, you know, for some of these poems. Like they range from the just absolutely beautiful and gorgeous sort of meditations on loneliness, bugs, mountains, death, to what are actually some really, really thoughtful historiographical interventions on what it means and what it can mean and what it has meant to do Chinese history. Um, so it's there's a lot in here, um, and, and we'll, over the course of our conversation, I'm sure, get to the kinds of opportunities, but also the kinds of particular challenges that poses, right, for you as a translator, translating across all of these different sorts of styles and modes. How did you, uh, before we get into these specifics, how did you come to be involved in this translation in particular? How did you come to um, develop the kind of relationship with Xichuan that was necessary for doing this work and choose this work in particular to publish a translation of? Uh, that's a, a great question. But first of all, I really want to say thank you for, for the encapsulation that you gave. That, that, that's really wonderful to hear. Um, as far as Xichuan goes, there are, there are two, um, two important issues. One is that um, uh, I, I, when I was uh, getting my PhD at Yale, I was part of a, a group that would meet every other week called the Working Group in Contemporary uh, Poetics. And uh, there were a couple of other members uh, of this group who had uh, met Xichuan and, 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 and uh, knew him a little bit. And one semester, he was uh, a guest lecturer at NYU. And we brought him to campus for a discussion with our group. And we also, that semester, there was another uh, a, a tour of a handful of other uh, contemporary Chinese poets. And we brought all of them together to, to New Haven for a reading at one point. So that was when I first got to meet Tijuan and, and sort of look at his work uh, seriously in, in, in the other, in the versions, you know, that had sort of piecemeal been translated here and there. Um, you know, uh, and and so so I so that was where I got to know him, and I met him, and I really uh, found him to be a, a really intelligent and, and, and genuine and insightful and interesting person, uh, and, and and also you know not independently, not coincidentally, uh, uh, writing some of the stuff that I found to be the some of the best writing in, coming out of China today. Um, so so I knew who he was, and, and that was in my mind. Uh, I don't know if it was maybe a year later. Uh, I published a, a book review um, by uh, of a collection of essays that, that had been published by New Directions. And New Directions is a press that I'd known about from 
you know, when I started being interested in poetry anyhow, and if you look at you know, Ezra Pound and, and William Carlos Williams and Kenneth Rexroth and, and so on, I mean, these are people who have been published from New Direction, by New Directions for, you know, for, uh, for, for decades and decades. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, I, 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 I wrote a review of, of a collection of essays, and afterwards, the, the writer of the, of, the, of the collection of essays that I, that I had, um, who was also a longtime New Directions author, uh, you know, he, he, after reading my review, he wrote to me to express his thanks, and he said, you know, by the way, New Directions has been interested in publishing a Sichuan book uh, for, for some time, but they haven't really found anybody that they thought would be a really good match as a translator, so that they could really promote. Uh, and I guess that, you know, whether it was a combination of, um, you know, the New Directions has been, has been Beidou's translator, I'm uh, sorry, publisher in the U.S. for, for quite some time, and, and, and Beidou and Sichuan uh, have, have, a, have had a long, a long you know, relationship with friends and colleagues. Uh, and... Um, so I think that maybe Beidou had, had told uh, New Directions that if they wanted to publish another Chinese poet, this would be one of the ones to look at and so on. Uh, and so, you know, uh, because I, I, I thought that kind of like a fast, an exciting idea, you know, it, it, it was not enough for me just to be sort of interested in translation and talking about translation as an important thing in the abstract. I also really wanted to be doing it in, active, in an active uh, publishing uh, way. And so I wrote to Xichuan and said, you know, here I have this opportunity what do you uh, what, what do you think about that? And he wrote back and he said, "That's great. I would love to do it. Um, you know, where do we where do we where do we begin?" Uh, and so I, I you know after that I, and at this point I had sort of gotten in touch with New Directions and an editor there already, and so things sort of started to coalesce in, in that way. Um, and uh, and you know, as that happened, I mean that's really the, the trajectory. It was not a quick process, right? It was not a, a fast project where. You know, he said, okay, here are these poems, translate them, and then, you know, send them in, and, and they're done. I mean, this is the process that took, uh, you know, uh, years of, 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 you know, visions and revisions, as, as they say, and, and, and so on. So can you, since we're on um, this topic, can you talk a little bit about um, the mechanics of that process? So uh, this is something that you mentioned took years and years of revisions, and that would be something that you know would be expected for a volume like this. What were what was the process actually like for you? How did you engage with the author? How often did you correspond? Is this something that um, you tried to talk about over the phone or in person, or was this via email? Because, and I ask this because. The, the mechanics of this and the kind of media that you use to talk about this is particularly interesting, right? When you're talking about a volume that takes the materiality of language so seriously and is so thoughtful about that. I, I can imagine that the sort of the material aspects of the process of actually producing the translation would also have been something that was really significant in this process. That's a great way to put this question. Um, you know, we start, as I said, we, we, we met in person first. Uh, and then after that, when I was living in Connecticut and, and Sihon was back in Beijing, we communicated almost exclusively via email. Um, you know, when I would go to Beijing, I would see him. Uh, we would meet, you know, you know, maybe days in a row and hours at a time, uh, you know, several hours at a time and, and go over uh, my, my, my draft of his work. Something that's important to mention, by the way, is that Sichuan went to an international uh, school uh, growing up. You know, he, he was uh, one of the kids fortunate enough. He was born in 1963, and he was fortunate enough to go to a school that 
in Beijing that was pretty much designed, as I understand it, for the children of diplomats. And so there was intensive English education from the very beginning. And he was an English major at Beijing University and graduated in 1985. Uh, and so his English, uh, you know, is completely fluent. Um, and so he was then able to, you know, offer his commentary uh, and, and corrections and so on on, on on my drafts as I was going along. Uh, and then that was that was very, very helpful. Um, usually when 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 he and I uh, email, uh, we'll email in English. And, you know, he'll he'll write to me in English or he'll write to me in Chinese either way. But I'll, I'll write almost exclusively in English. But when we're face to face or we're talking on the phone, it'll be in Chinese. Uh, but anyhow, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, um, it, it started out over over email, and not a whole lot of you know correspondence really, sort of as it as it was. I, at the first step of the process was uh, New Directions wanted about twenty pages worth of poetry uh, to see you know sort of how the book might take shape and to see if, if my translations were good enough for them to really sort of say, okay, we want to see more. Uh, and so I asked him for about 20 poems and we decided we agreed that it would be good to cover the, the breadth of his, of his writing career. And, and, and if you read the book, you can tell that there are a lot of changes that have taken place uh, in his career. And so we wanted to have something that would cover the breadth of that, not something that would just be like what he's doing now or, or what he did 15 or 20 years ago. Um, so, so uh, I worked on you know twenty or so poems. Uh, did a rough draft. I sent them to him. He made some edits. I sent them to I showed them to other people. I showed them to people who did know Chinese, who didn't know Chinese, who who were native speakers of English, who who were native speakers of Chinese, and uh, and then I sent them into to new directions. And and, and uh, soon enough, they got back and said, "Great, we want to see more." Um, in terms of my correspondence, the Xichuan ha- uh, came about. By the time that once I moved to Hong Kong, which is now I'm in my third year here, uh, we started talking on the phone more. Uh, he's he's come to Hong Kong uh, for a number of times uh, in that time, and, and we've become even closer as as, as friends in, in being able to you know to actually spend a significant amount of time in the same place together. Uh, and so so really, I think we've covered sort of all the bases. Right, there's been the written correspondence, there's been the phone, there's been face to face, there's been there's been all of that. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the great thing is that, you know, because, as I said, because his English is so good, you know, he really has, uh, sat down with me and, 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 uh, and he's, you know, looked at the, the various different options carefully and, and, you know, often he'll say, oh, I didn't know you could say that in English, you know, he really likes that, you know, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll sort of jot that down and I'll hear him sort of, next time I hear him say something in English, you know, I, He'll, he'll sort of be referring to a conversation or to a version of my translation of his work that I think is pretty exciting. Uh, also, you know, he's also a translator uh, himself. Um, recently, he translated uh, the poetry of Gary Snyder into Chinese, and, and I got to help him with some of his questions on that, too. Um, so, uh, so, you know, so, so, so that's sort of uh, in the, the shape of, the, of, of our, of our uh, correspondence and See, that's really fascinating. And it, it immediately raises for me the um, the question, since this is a relationship, uh, a kind of collaborative relationship that is inspiring the kinds of translation that, that you're doing with his work, and you're inspiring the kinds of translations, ostensibly, that he's doing um, you know, on his work and on Gary Schneider's poetry, the 
Did you find at any point in the process of your development as a translator while you were um, translating this poetry that the kinds of um, interactions with him about his work and specifically the kinds of edits that he would suggest um, making to the translations of his work changed qualitatively um, in any way your approach as a translator? Like, were there any shifts in your own development as a translator um, and your own approaches to his work in particular that you felt in the process of working together on this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the first issue is that, uh, the, one of the first changes is that, you know, um, you know, being writing a dissertation and a dissertation very much engaged in questions of translation theory, I had a rather more theoretical kind of take on translation when I started uh, working on these on these poems. That you know, once I moved to Hong Kong and started teaching classes in, in practical translation uh, to uh, non-native speakers of English and native speakers of, of Mandarin and, and Cantonese, that you know. That in itself saw a change in my attitude towards how how, how literary translation should be, um, and uh, also you know dealing with Yuan, who, as I said, is an experienced translator and, and so on. That was another part of that kind of kind of change. Um, another thing that, that's, that that I think is an important point in answering this question is that you know on the one hand, Yuan is not interested in saying this is what I meant, and that's the only thing that it can mean. Right? You know, he's interested in interpretive questions and, and he's excited about various different possibilities and potential understandings and divergent readings and so on. So he's never going to say, you know, this is what I meant and it has to be this way. At the same time, he will say, okay, I think you've made a mistake. That's not, that's not what I, that's not what I meant. You know, he'll also say, if you think that works better, then fine. But I'll just let you know, this is what I had in mind. So there are a lot of kinds of questions that you might kind of be embarrassed to ask a writer. What did you mean here? What's this really about? That he's very comfortable talking about. And at the same time, he's not going to say, you know, that's my intent and you have to honor that. right? And you have to make it say this and, and not something like that. I mean, there are all sorts of stories of, of you know, it, it, a lot of people actually, a lot of translators don't like to work with living writers because some of them, you know, uh, I mean, the story, I don't know, I'll give you an example. Milan Kundra evidently is very difficult to work with, uh, you know, for, for, for translators, uh, you know. Um, and, uh, but I found, I found Chichuan nothing but, nothing but, uh, but very easy and, and, and inspiring and fun to work. That's great. Thank you so much for illuminating that process a little bit. Now, as I've mentioned already, um, and as we move into um, the, the texture of the book itself and the poems themselves, the translation is really wonderful. And it's wonderful on many, many levels. Um, and one of the many levels, aside from it just being just incredibly inspiring poetry and poetry, that's just, it's such a pleasure also for, for readers who might have some Chinese and, you know, at, at any level of language ability to have both versions there because they really um, 
develop a relationship with each other, right? The Chinese version, if I can call it that, and the, the English version, if I can call it that. So that uh, layout and that editorial decision itself is really, really, I think it's beautiful for the reader. Now, this um, collection of poems, there are many poems in here, um, and there are poems that, as we've already um, alluded to, range pretty dramatically in time and style. And we'll, we'll talk about that um, over the course of, of the rest of the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about, in order to get there, the structure of the book as a whole. So the book is separated into two parts. Part one consists of standalone poems, and part two consists of excerpts from larger sequences, uh, from larger works. And um, there's also, at the end, an author's note, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Can you talk about that, that decision? When you were sitting down and deciding about the structure of the book, how did you decide on this structure, and maybe also... Also, um, we can talk about a little bit uh, how you decided what to include and what not to include. Um, uh, yes, that, 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 thank you. That, that's, all, uh, again, a very, a very interesting question. Um, the, the first version of the influence well, is the question of what to include. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, basically, you know, Tuan gave me sort of his sense of these are the poems that I think are kind of most important in my development since I started publishing in uh, 1985 or so. Uh, and so, you know, these are the poems that I think I've been working on the last, uh, you know, 20 some years that I, that I think are um, the ones, you know, worth keeping and that I want to share with, with, with uh, a readership in a different language. Uh, but the, the order that he gave them uh, to me, uh, it was quite different, and it was at first it was largely chronological, but then there were some places where you know here's a poem from you know this year put right up against a poem from another year that, that share a certain kind of theme, uh, and you know it was, by the time I had a full manuscript, it was pretty clear to me that 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 wasn't going to to work, uh, you know because too many of these sort of similar themes. Uh, maybe a, a Chinese readership uh, likes that. They want that kind of continuity. And here's one poem, and it leads to another poem, a very similar theme, and it leads to another poem, a similar theme. But for me, uh, and I felt maybe for American readers too, that would, or, or, or readers in English, that would be um, a little, uh, that would end up getting getting too repetitive. And I thought it would be better to, to break them out. And so, so the next thing we did was we said, and pretty much had it be uh, more or less completely chron chronological. But, uh, you know, a big break, uh, you know, at, um, oh, I, I know what it was. It, the, the second sort of version, it was, there was section A and there was section B, or, you know, part one, part two. And part one was only the shorter poems, uh, the, the sort of the lyrical pieces, right? And then the second, they got up to, you know, uh, 92, 93, 90, 90, uh, 94, maybe a few of them were sort of straggling in there. And then part two was, all of the longer, sort of more expansive pieces. And I think that, you know, when I sent in the full manuscript to New Directions, that was sort of what we needed to be. Our editor at New Directions said, this is, this is a little hard to follow, and, and uh, you know, you're, and, and again, sort of stylistically, things are maybe not being, uh, not sort of asserting their own, you know, these pieces aren't asserting their own uh, voices in, in, in the right kind of ways. Uh, and so 
he proposed a different way of doing it, and then Sichuan himself said, okay, this is how I really think it should be. I still really want there to be a separation of section one and section two, and I want there to be a chronological division to say, this is what I was doing at this point, this is what I was doing at this point. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of his writing is uh, historiographic. And so in the arrangement of his own work, I think that he had that sense of, you know, his own histori- you know, the historical profession, too. Um, you know, and considering that, you know, I, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, are, are pretty familiar with the, the really big changes in, in, in China, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and, the, 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 and, and then since uh, in, in, in the new millennium. You know, uh, really, I mean, China's Chinese society has changed in a lot of ways, and and you know, Sichuan's writing has 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 also changed in ways that offer particular commentaries on those on those sort of social changes too. And so, I think that is another reason why there's you know, in section one, it's uh, first the eighties, then the nineties, then the the two thousands, and then in section two, the longer poems, it's also still broken up into the nineties and then the the twenty first century. Right. Let's actually, um, this, this leads us really nicely to another um, really brief set of questions that's really germinal, I think, to understanding your decisions as a translator and also how um, you suggest that or you, you're imagining that readers approach this work that you've you've created and you've produced a, a, along with Shitran. You've mentioned um, the importance of, and I think this makes a ton of sense, the chronological development of the poems and the chronological structure in some way mir- mirroring Shitran's own interest in history and historical development and genealogy. Um, I mean, and this is something, this this interest in chronology and the, the place of the individual in time um, and the sort of the, the idea of a lifespan is really also something that you see coming up just you know, as a footnote thematically in a lot of the poems, right? The, there's one of the, one of the mosquito poems explicitly references the lifespan um, of right. the insect. And so this interest in the development of an individual in time, through time, with time, you know, the, the resonances of life and death and the interests um, in these themes also comes up in the poem. This all makes a lot of sense. Which raises the um, the dimension of this work and of understanding this work that has to do with the author's own biography. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this briefly in the introduction. Um, you mentioned that um, Xi Chuan was in Beijing during Tiananmen in 1989. How much of his own political and social background? Do you think shaped the way you approached the work? Um, how relevant do you think it is? Or perhaps not the right, that's not the right way of putting it. How much do you think readers' experience of the poetry is, should be shaped by their knowledge of his background? Basically, what I'm asking you then is um, two kinds of questions. So one, how much did taking into account his own political, social, cultural background shape your approach to the poems? And um, conversely, on the other hand, how much do you think that individual personal genealogy is important for a reader to understand and engage with the poems? So um, I just, I'm throwing a lot <laughs> at you, but there's, so there's two yeah. threads here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, again, that's a really great question and, and it's great because it's such a complex question. Um, I guess I would say, it, you know, it's all very important, but it's not important in the sense that it's a very direct sort of, you know, 
in order to appreciate this poem, you've got to understand that he was you know, that that I'm, I'm not very interested in that kind of reading. You know, I'm not, and I don't, and I don't get the sense that Tuan is very interested in that kind of thing. Like, you know, in order to 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 to, to understand this, you've got to know what it was like to live in Beijing in 19 you know uh, 73 or or 1994. I mean, I mean that that that's not. I mean that seems to me that the point then is not about the writing, but the point is about pretending the writing doesn't exist and it transports you to some other kind of, uh, you know, time or place. And, uh, and I think that, you know, with, with, with Tuan still, the focus is always on the writing itself. But that being said, you know, the writing is, seems to me to be a commentary on the, 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 the changes, and, uh, 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 you know, or, or the, the ways in which, you know, Chinese society or, or global society or, or whatever um, has, has, uh, you know the changes that have been going through. Um, you know, let me. You know, let me let me give an example. Um, a lot of. I mean, I think about this. You know, the, the sort of the recent discussions about you know the Nobel Prize and Moyen and so on. And a lot of people, um, you know, criticize Moyen for 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 what they perceive to be his political stance or his lack of a political stance and so on. And it seems to me that there's a very, a very sort of uh, assumption of a very straightforward correspondence between art and society that's going on there. And I think, it, you know, at least with Xichuan, I think it's a lot more complex than that. You know, in his afterward, he talks about the oxymoron being an important thing. And so, you know, he brings out uh, the oxymoron as something in his poetry and there's a political element to that because in some way, and not a direct way, but in a rather, you know, in a, in a rather oblique way, that's a commentary on certain things that have happened in Chinese society. And he talks about, you know, whether you talk about people's democratic dictatorship. He says Mao, Mao and, and Deng Xiaoping were masters of the oxymoron, right? Uh, the people's democratic dictatorship or, you know, the, the, the socialist market economy. He said, you know, they, these are oxymoronic. And at, at the political or economic level, we might frustrated by that and, and call it hypocritical but it also it, it also uh, opens itself up to a kind of literary reading where where we can have a different kind of angle on that and and, and, and understand the complexity of, of the text that is China uh, with its own complexity of a text that is a, a different kind of poem right so does that sort of make sense as a way to answer your question yeah, absolutely yeah absolutely um, anyway the, the point is that you know uh, it's not you know it, when I read a poem like, you know, written at 30, right, which traces, you know, Chinese society in, in, in the 30 years that he had been living at that time, it's not important to me to say, oh, this is exactly about, you know, this campaign of the culture of, this is about when he was living in thus and such, or, or this is when he was a university student at Beijing University. I mean, that, those individual sort of specific placements of where he was don't matter to me so much as this is, you know, a point of view offering a complex commentary on a complex situation. Right. Now, there are elements, though, in the the kind of genealogy, the personal genealogy and the political genealogy of the author that did shape the way the the texture of the poems shifts over the course of time as they're reflected here. And that's, um, I'm, you know, in particular, I'm gesturing toward this shift that seems to happen around 1991. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about this shift in the nature yes. of, uh, of his poetry in whatever way you want to, um, to lay that out? Right. Uh, as I said, he graduated uh, as an English university in 1985, and that was also when he started writing. And 
know, he um, was coming out uh, as, as a poet in the middle of the 80s. Right? I mentioned Beidou and, and Yang Lian. Uh, um, um, and so in some ways, you know, the poetry uh, that was coming out in the 80s, in and, and his good friends, Luo uh, Yihe and Haizi, and a few others uh, as well, they were writing something that in some ways was a, a response uh, against the kind of the 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 Dao and Yang and what was called the obscure, or sometimes it's translated as misty, the Mongol poetry. Uh, and in some ways it was a continuation of that. Um, and, you know, it was... You know, this guy who was uh, at, at this moment of, of cultural opening up and people thought it was an enlightenment in the 19, China in the 1980s and uh, theme, things seemed really hopeful and there was a lot of idealism and, and, and he's an English major and he was uh, sort of, there's a sort of internationalist kind of atmosphere and he's writing these, these lyrical pieces and he seems to be very interested in beauty and, and I think really in a lot of ways really achieving that. And he sort of gets, makes a name for himself uh, early on. Uh, in that kind of a poetic mode. Um, when 1989 comes around, uh, a number of things happen. Right? Uh, first of all, you know, as we know, there's the, the, the Tiananmen Square demonstrations and then the fact that it was crushed by the, 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 by the government, right? The tanks rolled in and people were killed. Um, you know, and, and, and so he was uh, you know, a young man at that time. He had been in, in Tiananmen Square, not on the day of the the massacre, but but in, the, in some of the days leading up to that, uh, and uh, so 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 that was a tumultuous thing for him to experience. But also before that, uh, the two friends of his that I just mentioned, Haidz uh, and Luo Yihe, both again in their early twenties, uh, died. Luo Yihe died of I think of a brain hemorrhage, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, he died of a brain hemorrhage on Tiananmen Square. Uh, you know, uh, so he may have been you know the first casualty of of, of that. Uh, of those demonstrations. This was before anything had got violent. Um, but bef- even before that, Haizu uh, killed himself. Um, and, uh, and so all of these things sort of in, in quick succession, right? The suicide of one friend, the death of another, and then the, uh, the, the government coming in and, and, and crushing the, the, the political demonstrations of, of, of his generation uh, in Beijing. Now, this was very traumatic. And um, he wrote much less uh, for the next couple of years and published almost nothing for the next couple of years. And when he did start publishing again, it was very, very different, right? He was not writing these contained lyrics uh, that seemed interested in, 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 in engaging with, with beauty and, and sort of uh, kind of what we think of as the essence of lyric poetry everywhere. Rather, he was writing these, these uh, very expansive kind of... Um, these very expansive kind of prose poems that, uh, you know, uh, much more curious, um, uh, darker in some ways, but also funnier, um, and uh, really much more interested in trying to sort of open up the possibilities of poetry uh, and uh, rather, rather than sort of assume that poetry only means, only means that one thing, that one thing that he thought it meant to be. Uh, and, so, and, and so that, I think... You know, I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think as a narrative too, right? There's a re- there's a reason that we want to see people change, and we want to see people go from being really good in one area to then then t- turning back and questioning that, and, and becoming really good in, in in something that's a development and a reaction against that other that that thing that, that had defined their their excellence uh, early on. And so I think that Sichuan comes with this kind of uh, comes with this narrative already in, in his development. 
And of course, you know, a lot of it, a lot of people will then take sides and you know, kind of like Bob Dylan. You know, I like I like early Dylan or I like the the, the late Dylan or whatever. It's you know, the, the sort of the, something happens similar with uh, with uh, with Sichuan. I guess this is my Bob Dylan theory of Chinese literature. <laughs> Now, this is actually really fascinating to to know about, to hear about, and it raises um, another set of questions that I'd actually love to um, to start asking you right now, which is it this kind or being sensitive to this kind of change in style, change in um, the nature of the kind of work and the goals of the work um, that come along with a, tra- a personal transformation of the author puts particular demands on you as a translator, right? So this sort of, um, or if not demands, I'll I'll phrase it as challenges. What were some of the challenges um, that you faced as a translator in trying to embody in English and represent and do justice to this kind of transformation and this range um, in different poetic styles and different linguistic registers in the original poetry? Yeah, again, that, that's a great, a great question. But the, the biggest challenge is simply, you know, how do I imagine this? What's, you know, what, what's, what's, the, what's the appropriate equivalence? And when I say equivalence, I'm not talking about, you know, what does this word mean? I mean, obviously, sometimes that is an issue. Right? What does this word mean? The dictionary definition doesn't seem to be very helpful. Um, but, you know, but really, I mean, how, not, 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 not as much, I think basically what does this mean is a much easier question and a much more easily solved question than how does this mean? How should this be said? But, so that's exactly the issue, right? What is the kind of, you know, if there's, if there's a way in which Sichuan's writing in Chinese engages with uh, and defines itself by some sort of relationship with or against, uh, you know, spoken language of Chinese, uh, the spoken language of Beijing, uh, you know, in, in a Beijing accent, uh, uh, contemporary Chinese writing, history, you know, classical Chinese literary history, and so on that people might be familiar with. You know, how how do how do I engage that uh, in English? There are a couple of moments in the English translation where I will throw in an allusion to something uh, from somewhere else in English uh, or Western literary culture that is not an exact uh, you know. Uh, Equivalence to to what Sichuan maybe does in is of Chinese culture at that moment, but does say take the place of an illusion, a reference, a wink, or something that I may have let drop at another moment. Right? So so you know uh, so at one point maybe I'll say oh here's here's a little sort of uh, nudge towards you know uh, William Wordsworth or something like that, uh, which will get at uh, a nudge maybe that uh, that. That uh, the Sichuan has towards, let's say, you know, um, Su Shi. That, that at that given moment, I couldn't quite bring over. Um, so I think that the challenge really is to be, you know, as as cognizant of, of all of these, of all sorts of different uh, possibilities and the range of of, uh, of uh, different expressions in English as Sichuan is Chinese. And did any part of your process, and, and then I and I'll I'll get to the poems themselves <laughs> right after this. But did any part of the process of translating for you mirror at all the kind of um, change in style that you see reflected in the poetry? And by that um, I mean, was there anything like you started with the early ones first and then worked your way toward the late ones, or the, did the order in which you um, approached the poems just was it more random than that? 
Um, the way that I translated it, well, first we had the 20 poems uh, that we wanted to give as a proposal, as a book proposal first. And so I translated, and those were, were in chronological order, but there were only 20 of them. And so I did those, and I worked on those drafts many, many times to get them to where I thought they were good enough. And then I did the, uh, the whole uh, manuscript that at the time was arranged straightforward. Uh, oh, no, that's not true. It was not arranged straightforward chronologically. It was generally chronologically, but there were moments of, of mixture and, and, uh, and, and so on in there. And so I think I translated it first according to that, and then we, and then we uh, rearranged the order, and I went through the, the, the drafts and so on, uh, and, uh, and the edits and revisions. Uh, and... Um, so, so at any given moment, I had to be, you know, here, this is where Keith Lund is, is uh, you know, he's at this sort of phase as, as, a, as a writer. And I had to be translating with that kind of uh, question in mind. Right. Great. So let's, we've talked about the process. We've talked about the structure. Let's get into the poems themselves. Um, the, there's a lot of beauty in this volume and there's also a lot of thoughtfulness and this is both um, in both versions of all of the poems and um, like I've said it's really really striking what are some of your let's start with favorites what were there any that you felt particularly moved by as a reader and or particularly um, challenged by or moved by as a translator um, absolutely although I, I will have to say that you know when you are translating something and you're and you're reading something as deeply as as, as a translation requires, um, you know your emotions will change with every with every kind of reading. And and, and I may be really moved by this poem. Uh, you know, I, I, I could read a poem first, and then I'll be uh, I'll be really moved by the first sort of stanza, and then I'll find the second stanza you know completely opaque and won't be able to understand it. Uh, or then when I'm translating it. Uh, I'll find it really uh, fun at first, and then I'll find it really tedious, or I'll find, or, or you know, all of the kinds of, uh, all of these issues come up again and again, because you have to deal with these, with these pieces at such an intense uh, level. But, but, but here's one, let me see if I can find this, I'll read this, it's, it's, it's quite short. Um, it's one that, you know, when I first translated it, I don't think that it really, you know, meant a lot to me. I, I sort of did a quick draft, and and that was it. And then I, you know, a few tweaks here and there. But it wasn't until much later, after I'd pretty much had a complete draft, that I felt like this poem was was, was as interesting as. as so it's uh, it's called "Rereading Borges's Poetry" uh, for Anne, and uh, my translation. Uh, the precision of this statement emerges from the chaos of the past. This pure force, like the rhythm of a dripping faucet annotates the aporia of history. Touching starlight, I leave night to the earth, night that licks the earth's crevices, that fourth memory. No man is a man. Nowhere is a place. And no man in nowhere has written these lines I must decipher in the shadows. I give up scouring the world of dust for the author and lift my head to see a librarian lethargically and only for his livelihood preserving the order of the universe and books. Wow, thank you. So, can you talk about about this poem? Yeah, yeah. So, I guess you know what I really um, like about this is that um, I mean, I, I guess you know, I, I I sort of mentioned that I got to a point 
uh, in, in, in grad school where I, you know, ended up being really theoretical and, and treating translation very theoretically. And I think I got to a point at the same time where I, where I was treating literature very theoretically and I sort of, you know, accepted a certain critique of the lyric that, you know, uh, the lyric poetry had sort of stopped. It no longer uh, had its, uh, an effect on me. Um, in the same way. And so, I, you know, I, I was drawn to Teton prose pieces, prose poems, expansive, longer series poems in ways, and, and I think that that's great. Um, and I'm still, of course, very drawn to those. But it was reading this poem in, in, in a certain way after I had already thought I was pretty much done with it, that that, that, it, that sort of opened up the possibility of a, of a lyric poetry, of a lyric poem being being being, being more uh, than, than what, you know, my my adopted sort of critique of lyrics, of lyric poetry at and uh, and I guess what I like about this is that you know it's a it's a poem uh, about uh, poetry, right? And it's it's a poet writing about a poet, and it's specific, And there are certain things that if you know Borges, you know you know he was a librarian, you know that he was he was blind, he, he wrote about books, and he wrote uh, you know precise uh, sort of precisely worded meditations on. Uh, you know, historical and, and 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 also cosmic kind of topics, and also just that he's such a he's such a master technician. Uh, you know, and and Sichuan has, has said that that you know two of his favorite poets are Borges, uh, and, and in English we don't even really think of Borges as a poet primarily. I think we think of him as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sichuan has said that the two of his favorite poets are Borges and Ezra Pound, and he feels like sometimes when he feels like he's uh, too sort of controlled and, and confined. He wants to, he reads Pound to sort of loosen himself up. And when he feels like he's too wild and too out, out there and extravagant, he'll, he'll read Borges to rein himself back in. Uh, and, I, and I really like that kind of attitude. And so, you know, the first line of this poem, which I found, the decision of this statement emerges from the chaos of the past, um, I think really, you know, brings out that, that tension that, that, that I just uh, mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the even some of your um, choice of words in the translation, the forked, for anybody mm-hmm. who reads Borges, right, they're immediately going to think that's immediately going to evoke Borgesian, mm-hmm. or at least the, the translated right. version of Borgesian language, right, that a lot of us, um, a lot of English readers will have grown up um, reading. Like the, right. Isn't the Garden of Forked Paths, right? Like you can't use uh, Garden of Forked you yeah, can't right. use the word forked in a, a, a any kind of poem that's that involves Borges and not evoke that imagery, right? So it's it's actually quite a, a really brilliant decision on your part to do that. Well, thank you. That is a decision. You know, it's there, right? I mean, the the, the, the word in Chinese is actually the word that, that uh, the Chinese translation of Garden of Forking Cat uses too. So mm-hmm. so I think so, so so that's not me as a translator, uh, you know, determining something to be there that may or may not be there in the original, but. That that I, that I think we can be sure we can be confident enough to say that that is there in, in, in Tito. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, but but there are other kinds of moments, right? I, I say annotates the aporia of history, right? And aporia is this word that you know is very much associated these days. Well, maybe not these days anymore, but has been recently with you know post-structuralist, uh, you know, deconstructive literary criticism and so on. And uh, you know, I could have picked another word. But because Borges has been so, uh, so, um, so much uh, sort of adopted or, or embraced by that kind of you know uh, mode of reading of, of, uh, of literature, that I felt like a word like that could be justified. Right. 
Now, you had mentioned earlier that there was one of, um, you also had a poem from the later set that you were interested in sort of reading and talking about. Is there, do you mind doing another reading for us? Because this is great. I don't, I don't mind at all. But, but, but before I do one from the later, can I do another, an earlier one? Oh, Actually, yes, please. Abs- or- yeah, absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> um, this is uh, because you're asking about biography and, and commentary on society and so on. I, I wanted to read written at 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, Sichuan was uh, born in 19... 19- uh, 63, and he stopped. He, he slowed down his writing a lot uh, after 1989 for a couple of years. And so, in 1993, he was sort of getting back in writing. And soon enough, his writing would change. But here's something that's sort of right at the hinge between its earlier mode and its later mode. And uh, it's, it's a little bit longer than the Borges one, but uh, uh, I hope we're okay on time. Oh, yeah, go for it. And written at 30. Uh, in my first decade, the moon revealed its silent craters. While under that moon, in the town I lived in, a clatter of exorcismal gongs and shouts in the street, my limping uncle swore in the courtyard. Careless, I met with a white rooster's kiss, and a girl pulled down her pants in front of me. I ran into a suicide's shade on the stairs and was instructed to not be scared. My father lifted me over his head, pale bounced in exhaustion on the road to the commune. I entered an immaculate school and studied revolution. In my second decade, with working crickets of all countries, I grew up. Together we scorned difficulty. Together fell in love with violence and moonlight. A tiger appeared at my door. I smelled the scent of flesh. I bunny hopped to a stranger's doorway and saw a man and woman preparing their festive attire. I stole, and others stole too. I set fire to sparrows, and others did too, such as life. But I had an outstanding gift for painting ideals of mountain landscapes without too many sins requiring forgiveness. Some doors shut, some doors were yet to open. My third decade was for travel and study. It made sense to torment myself. I sang for the brow and knees of love, but saw no fairy queens descend on the streets. Friends came, wild and vivacious, then vanished, leaving me a shirt and glasses, but no way to wear them. The spearhead of judgment called forth catastrophe as riots of flesh that called forth rainstorms. I shouldered an umbrella and climbed up a hill, a bird searching for someone greeting thunder and lightning, making circles in the rain. How can you doubt both yourself and the world at once? You can't stop the rain, can't get a bird to land in your hand. Thoughts like a knife, a flick of the blade, drenches my spirit in sweat. I drive out 30 contentious philosophers and say to the shadow who guards me, I'm sorry. Salty sweat. Salty tears. What else is flesh supposed to taste like? Night is like a display of identical rooms I walk through, pacing back and forth as if it were all one room. Morning to night, my worries for the future prove I'm ill at ease. The earth is in motion, but I have yet to sense it. So, so one one point that I wanted to make about you know the translation and and his poetry and so on. Uh, the second stanza in my second decade. Uh, you know, so here, it, like I said, he's, he's so he's talking basically about the years 1973 to 1983. So, so that you know, the, the 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 first three years of which would have been the end of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, I translated this in my second decade with working crickets of all countries I grew up. And he says uh, uh, in Chinese, he says, And um, you know, the, the, 全世界的蟋蟀, 
just, you know, basically that means all the world's crickets, right? But, um, you know, he explained to me that, you know, writing about uh, the, 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 the 1970s in China and, and, and everywhere there was Maoist discourse and Marxist discourse and so on, you know, just hearing the expression, you know, right, the whole world. Uh, today, you know, maybe you would translate that as meaning the whole world, right? Um, or every, everything in the world or, or something else. But, um, you know, in Chinese, I think, is much more, and he explained this to me, you know, he was doing this consciously sort of writing through the, the, the Maoist rhetoric of the era. And so I felt like if I would have just said, you know, with all the world's crickets, I grew up with all the world's crickets, that would have been insufficient. And so I had to change that and tweak that a little bit in English to, to add that sort of layer of Marxist kind of rhetoric. And so, you know, I, I went back to, to, you know, the Communist Manifesto and working men of all countries and, and that kind of language. And so uh, with working crickets of all countries, I grew up. That, that's how I come, that's how I come back kind of alive. That's, that's totally great. Is there anything else about the poem um, that you want to, like, what about this poem in particular struck you as being, um, you know, especially interesting from the perspective of a translator? Um, I mean, this is another one of those moments where, you know, it does, it does raise the question, I think, of, um, you know, how much does uh, a, how much does knowledge, how, how much knowledge of China is required of a, uh, of, of a reader, right? right. I mean, uh, Americans are notoriously English speakers in in, in, uh, in just about everywhere are notoriously bad at reading works in translation. Right? I mean, the story is that only three percent of books published in English uh, every year are translations, and of that three percent, you know, how many? Like maybe a third of those are manga, right? Another 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 uh, large percentage are just going to be cookbooks or or. Uh, or, uh, or, or, you know, uh, manuals or, or, or books of all, of all sorts of other varieties, right? So actually literal, actual literary translations is way, way, way below 3%, maybe we're close to 1%. And, you know, one of the, uh, I mean, there are many reasons that this is a sad situation, but one of the reasons for that is that, you know, it, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to appreciate something if you don't know enough about the culture that, that, uh, that it comes from. So how, how important is it to know about China before you start uh, reading uh, poetry from contemporary China. Um, one of the things that I think that the ways in which that poem is, is, is an interesting answer is because, you know, any one of those lines, right? I don't necessarily, I don't know. You know. I don't think you have to know uh, what exactly it refers to, but, but you do know that it refers to, and it's the combination of the various somethings and the references that, that, uh, that, that all come together in a poem that creates that narrative and that creates that sort of expression. And, and that anybody, you know, you don't have to be 30, right? Anybody at any point in life uh, can relate in some way, I think, to that kind of, uh, to that kind of an experience, right? We can all say, oh, yeah, this happened when I was, you know, in, in my, in, when, when I was in my teens, this happened. When I was in my, my 20s, this happened. And, and, uh, and we can offer a kind of meditation on that, but it's both, uh, you know, uh, concrete and yet kind of kind of uh, nebulous at the same point. Right. And there's also something that um, about this that actually brings us nicely into a question about the authors afterward, um, if I can ask, which is you sure. you might I mean there are some readers who would read this and immediately get a reference to works of Confucius, right? When I was in my teens, when I was in my twenties, when I was thirty sure. and forty, um, and it's this sort of play with 
the idea of a person living in time right now with an engagement with some some idea of or some way to play with something we might consider tradition that animates a lot of a lot of what's going on in a lot of the poems here this is of right. course um, also something that comes up in um, in a really striking super useful totally assignable for historians. I just want to put that out there like in history courses, and I'm going to do this afterward at the end of the book um, called The Tradition This Instant. So could you say a little bit about that piece and the, the place of that piece um, in the um, larger structure of the book and for you as a translator? Um, yeah. Um, I think that... Um, That, that's another interesting question, right? Because I think that, you know, that piece was written, I think Sichuan wrote that for a specific, you know, in response to a certain debate that was current in amongst intellectuals and writers in China at, at a certain moment. Right? If I'm not mistaken, that's, that's dated, uh, I'll look at it, dated, you know, 2011, right? So really just a couple of years ago. Um, and that was the last thing that I translated from the book, by the way. I mean, I translated almost the, I, I translated the entire uh, book of poems and then we were looking for a, 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 a prose piece to, to throw in as, not to throw in, but to, to use. And so, and so Xichuan had pretty much just finished that and just published it in, in China and said, here, this, I think, is representative of, 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 a lot of, of encompassing a lot of what I want to say uh, as, as a sort of a, a cultural commentator. Uh, and, and so the question really is about, you know, this issue of, uh, you know, tradition and uh, the various ways in which not only tradition, but traditions uh, and the many different strands of tradition uh, come together uh, at once. Uh, and, and really, let's take a look at um, all, of the, all of the different things that define our experience and kind of, uh, you know, let's historicize them, right? Let's consider them from different angles. Uh, let's uh, look at them up close and look at them with a bit of distance, too. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think that, um, you know, and there's a way in which that offers his, a, a sense of, you know, his poetics there. But, but as you said, I mean, I, I don't think that you have to have much interest or knowledge about poetry whatsoever to find that a very interesting, a very interesting kind of, uh, kind of commentary. Um, I'm, I'm actually very curious about how, uh, you know, uh, readers, um, who know very little about China would, would, would approach or appreciate uh, something like that. Um, I, I don't have very much of a much of a sense of that. Now, this um, before we kind of move to the the close here and um, come to the conclusion that concern with or maybe explicit evocation of uh, history and a way of thinking about history and doing history and thinking about it um, in the context of literature. Um, his own literature and, and a broader context of literature in China of China is also something that animates the poems in the later part of the book. Um, was there any, before we close and, you know, kind of wrap up, were there any of the poems in the later part of the book that you wanted to single out for, um, for special attention while we're here? Sure. Yeah. One of my favorites of that section and, and the last few poems are called 30 Historical Reflections. If I'm not mistaken, he's written more than 30 at this point. I don't know if he's going to add, you know, uh, if he's going to change the title to, to 40 historical reflections or 50 or whatever, or if he'll just keep it 30, but there will be more than 30. I, I'd be interested in knowing what he, what he does with that. 
Um, I, but I think that he, he's still writing these sort of sequences. Uh, he, he sort of calls them uh, poesics, uh, you know, cause they're, because they're, they're both poems and essays at the same time. But that person writing is one of my favorites. Um, I'll, I'll read it here. Eighty wooden slips, like a line of old men linked by fate. The seal script writing interposed in the slips is difficult to discern, but what it conveys about heaven, the state, war, and the thoughts of the sages remains unchanged. The work of the brush of this anonymous writer looks like the brushwork of Sumatian or Sumatianwu. Only at a remove of 2,000 years can the customary greatness of his era be perceived. From afar, he may yet have glimpsed Sumatianwu or Sumatian. He dips his brush in ink, working stroke upon stroke, permitting himself not one false word, writing the aphorisms of thumbs and delighting in his thoughts. He's nearly convinced that the thoughts he transcribes will be of great use to humanity. These thoughts he protects. These thoughts he transmits. Wittingly or not, certain words are altered. Wittingly or not, he retains his own breath within the views of another. From a humble stenographer, he unwittingly transforms into a minor author of this great author, like an ant tethering thoughts kite against the wind. Sunlight spilling onto the writing desk, he sneezes. On the street, shoe sellers call out to him, you, you're, you're the guy who deals in thought. He writes on wooden slips in a time before the invention of paper or movable type. And so what he writes is the one book. Each book so written must be the one book. But later, a dead man takes his book underground. The thought that evolved from this book, the thoughts that were transformed from this book, would ultimately reshape the world. But this one book, through the slow stretch of time, was no more to be found. And now, even if it were to be brought back to life, those thoughts transformed from it, the thought adopted by the world could never be corrected, like a forgery re-entering the site of civilization. And that person writing, it's as if he had never been born. He is a speck of dust on the earth, disseminating civilization in its limited way. Hmm. So can, um, can you say a little bit about what um, what is striking you about this poem? Why is this one of your favorites? What do you feel, um, or what about this particularly inspires you? I feel a real attachment to that poem because as I understand that it's about questions of, of historiography and what it means to write and to transcribe and to record, it's, and, and also it's a poem about the creative process, right? And, and what it means to write something that you're not transcribing, but what it's like to write something that you see as some sort of commentary on you know society or history or whatever uh but you're up against you know you're sort of a minor author next to next to great authors or, or an ant tethering a kite against the wind i also see it at, at the same time you know and this is my personal you know uh, idiosyncratic reading i see it as, as an expression of what it's like to be a translator um and and all of these anxieties of you know uh wittingly or not i retain my own breath within uh, you know, the voice of, 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 of transcribing another. Uh, and so um, I feel like that, um, I feel like that's, that's a, a, you know, a, a great example of how, you know, sort of writing itself is always going to involve these kinds of issues and, and, and poetry and translation uh, are always going to, to involve these issues. And I think that, uh, you know, that's something that I come back to uh, again and again, you know, in, in that particular uh in, in that particular poem. 
Well, Lucas, it's been such a pleasure um, in, in so many ways. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with me today about this really wonderful work. Is there thank any? You. Is there anything um, in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, like anything about the book, or mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, you know what one of the things that that I think is is, is uh, well, I, I will say this, right? We are now, um, and it's not about this book specifically, but it's about the state of, of, of uh, contemporary Chinese poetry in, in English. Right? From the, the, the late 70s until only a couple of years ago, right? uh, there, were, there were many anthologies uh, of, of, of contemporary Chinese poetry. Uh, from, you know, from, from, and actually, there still continue to be anthologies of contemporary Chinese poetry in English. Right? And these are books that have you know, 10 or 15 or 20 to 25 different poets and a handful of, of, di- of poems by different poets. And maybe they're translated by the same translator. Maybe they're translated by a, a whole hodgepodge of various different translators, uh, often trying to say, this is what, you know, Chinese writing is today or, or whatever. And, uh, but the problem was that in that, in that moment, right, uh, these anthologies had, had squeezed out the possibility of an individual author, an individual poet's collection with the exception of uh, poets who had been exiled, right? So Beidao and Yang Lian and Duo Duo uh, were the only people who had, had their, were the only Chinese poets, mainland Chinese poets, uh, living mainland Chinese poets who had their work uh, published in English translation. And uh, a couple of years ago, that finally broke. Uh, there's a, a, a series Zephyr, a, edited by, by Zephyr Press uh, of contemporary Chinese poetry. There's this book. Uh, you know, it's the only the second Chinese, it's the second living Chinese poet that New Directions has ever po- uh, published. And Beidao is the first in that one. Um, and they've done, you know, Gu Chang, who, who died uh, in the early 90s, and uh, also, you know, Li Bai and Du Fu and so on, but uh, they're not living anymore. Uh, and also, so in addition to that, and then there's uh, uh, University of Oklahoma has a Chinese Literature Today series. And so really we're at this, net, you know, this, this sort of, this crest of, of more, uh, Chinese contemporary Chinese poetry is being published, uh, and uh, I think it's it's you know we're finally at a point where we can have Chinese poetry be represented by more than just a handful of poems by uh, a really large number of poets, and actually we can have you know book length collections being published, and I think that's a really uh, exciting thing for uh, you know for, for readers, for people interested in China, people interested in, in Chinese literature, uh, and so on. Great. Now, now that this book is out, and um, I know you're busy right now also, you, there's a blog um, that is online that's also called Notes on the Mosquito, and I'll make sure to include a link for listeners. What's next for you? Um, what are you working on now? Is there another poet you're interested in translating? Is there um, other kind of work that you're doing? What's inspiring you right now? Um, I have, uh, I guess there are three big projects that I'm working on Um uh, let, let's make that four. One is a really long-term project. I'd like to do a, 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 a collection uh, of uh, poems by the Tang Dynasty called Li Shangyu, uh, and, and that would be a very different kind of book, and, and that's going to be many years in the future. So it's doing that slowly. Uh, also, I'm working at the, uh, the seminal contemporary poet Mang Ke, who was another one of those figures from the, from the late 70s and early 80s, friends with Beidou and, and, uh, and Yang Lian at the time. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing a translation uh, of a collection of his book, uh, a collection of uh, a collection of his works 
and that's for, for uh, the, the Zephyr Press series that I just, that I just mentioned. Uh, also, I'm working on uh, a, 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 a book-length uh, academic work, which is a revision of my dissertation, which is on uh, Chinese poetry in the 20th century and in the Tang Dynasty and questions of world literature. Um, and so uh, those, those are some of the projects that I'm working on. Um, also, I, I have a, a, a son who's two and a half weeks old <laughs> today. So, uh, so that's a project that, that I think will take some time to. The most important project. That's right. The most important one. <laughs> well, Lucas, I'll let you get back to him. I'm into that really okay. important work. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. And thanks for making the time. And especially given the time difference we're working on. That's been absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.